Hello, St. Louis, and welcome to the STL Leaders Podcast, hosted by Brian Bisking. Brian started this weekly podcast to give a voice to leaders of our community, to share their story, their journey, and the lessons that they have learned along the way. Brian grew up in a small town outside of St. Louis, where he watched his father run a small business and was always interested in how the leaders in his community got where they are. Whether it's a local business leader, a philanthropist, or a celebrity, these are your STL Leaders. Join us today, where we will chat with another pillar of our community on this week's episode of the STL Leaders Podcast. And now, your host, Brian Bisking. Hello, St. Louis, and welcome to the STL Leaders Podcast. We have a great episode for you today. But before we get to this week's episode with Mitch Myers, I want to thank one of my great sponsors, the Tom James Company. Crafted using your exact measurements, custom clothing is the perfect expression of who you are or who you intend to be. It's about getting what you want, the right fit, the right fabric, the right details, the right style. Ben Lawler with the Tom James Company helps you choose from over 500 custom suit fabrics and 250 custom dress shirt fabrics. He can help you build your entire wardrobe, including suits, shirts, trousers, sports coats, and even custom tuxedos. To learn more, visit stlleaders.com. Also want to thank Enterprise Bank and Trust, Synchrony HR, and NWO IT Services. And now, to this week's episode of the STL Leaders Podcast. On this week's episode of the STL Leaders Podcast, I welcome Mitch Myers. Mitch Myers was co-founder and president of an award-winning marketing and communications agency, which employed 350 people with offices in five states and revenues exceeding $42 million annually. She was the Ad Woman of the Year, CEO and pilot of the famed Zipatoni, and the mother of Bud Light. Her 25-plus years in the marketing and communications space was spent building launching and consulting for brands of major Fortune 100 companies, startup businesses, and various advisory board organizations. After retiring for a short period of time, she became the co-owner and partner at the Belief Company here in St. Louis, Missouri. Her organization has proudly been producing high-quality CBD oils to treat epilepsy patients, as well as developing brands for the general consumer market. It is my honor to welcome Mitch Myers to the show. Mitch Myers, welcome to the STL Leaders Podcast. Greatly appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, Brian. I'm excited. Absolutely. So, uh, ironically, uh, you've known my father a very long time, and we got introduced uh, not too long ago by a mutual friend. Uh, and uh, I'm excited just to dive in about your background today and, and now what you're doing. Well, it's not a typical one. Um, <laughs> people look at me now and say, wow, how do you get to be where you are? And um, I, it was a very windy path. Uh, I started out um, in accounting, uh, getting a degree in finance and, and accounting from SIUE, uh, worked for a public accounting firm for several years and decided that wasn't for me. 
So I went back to school getting my master's in finance and found a position at the 7up company, which was based in St. Louis at the time, in their accounting department. But I really was wanting to transition into marketing. Those people looked like they were having a lot more fun than the accountants. (laughs) So I ultimately did that. And interestingly, I got that job because they wanted my financial background. Obviously, marketing expenses are something you have to keep track of. Um, so it was a win-win for both of us. Um, a couple years later, I got a phone call from a headhunter. There was a brewery in St. Louis looking to hire somebody that would introduce a new product for Anheuser-Busch. And obviously, I jumped on that. Um, and it was to introduce Bud Light in 1982. So a team of us got to work on that, introduced that brand was very exciting, lots of fun, big budgets, high pressure. And then I ultimately uh, got into new products for Anheuser-Busch. So my role was really uh, finding brands that would fit within the distributor network, uh, creating brands. Um, So it was very fast paced and interesting. After 1989, I was approached by a gentleman in St. Louis who was a creative director who wanted me to join him in starting a creative agency. And we did called the Zipatoni Company. Um, And we built that firm over 15 years to 350 employees, five offices around the country, 45 million in revenue annually, and then sold that to a large advertising conglomerate in 2003. And then I retired. (laughs) Um, It was it was time for me to become mother of the year. My kids were in grade school and high school and spent a few years, you know, bossing them around. And at the same time, I started getting on boards, um, U.S. Bank Board and the St. Louis Community Foundation. And I got introduced to a lot of interesting people. And at one of those board meetings, I was asked if I would be interested in investing in medical cannabis that was coming to the state of Illinois in 2014. And I was very interested in that. I had seen medical in Colorado come into play and I actually had friends that were working in the industry and were treating people directly. And so it fascinated me. Thought that I would just make an investment, go to a few quarterly meetings, but it ended up because I lived in Illinois, I became the person that put the team together, that found the financing, that got the real estate, made the application, and actually applied for the licenses. So that was a two-year period of intense research, traveling, meeting people that were cultivating, extracting, manufacturing products, and then treating patients. So we were fortunate to get a dispensary license in the Chicago area, And I got that up and operational and staffed. And shortly after that, the state of Missouri offered two licenses for people to cultivate CBD, which is a form of cannabis, extract that into oils and treat uh, epilepsy patients. So I, I was very close and personal with families that were dealing with, you know, kids that were born with very serious epilepsy conditions, working with Cardinal Glennon Hospital in St. Louis. Um, and it was a very intense learning experience around CBD. 
Um, and then the state of Missouri, as many states uh, around the country are moving into medical cannabis, Missouri passed a law um, in 2019 um, to approve medical cannabis for the state. And what that meant was there would be multiple licenses for people to cultivate cannabis, um, manufacture it into different products, and then sell it at dispensaries. And so I put together another team. We went after a bunch of licenses thinking we would only get maybe three, and we ended up getting 10. Wow. So the last year has been very active for us, fundraising, uh, constructing, you know, working with contractors all over the place and getting these 10 licenses operational. So, so much for the retirement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's take a quick step back. Tell me about, so you introduced Bud Light product. Tell me about Spud McKenzie. <laughs> Spuds McKenzie was my firstborn male. Um, <laughs> actually, it was a she. It wasn't a male. It was a she. Um, our, our brand was looking for a college promotional idea. And I had worked with our ad agency out of Chicago. And we came up with this idea of a party animal. And we wanted to use a dog. But we didn't want a dog that was stereotypical, so we got a, a, you know, a kennel book and started looking through pictures. And somebody said on the phone call, what kind of dog did General Patton have? Looked like a pig riding around in his Jeep with him. So we keep looking through the book and we find it. It's an English Bull Terrier. So we call the uh, kennel club in Chicago and say, do you have an English Bull Terrier? And they're like, absolutely. We said, we want one with a black patch over its eyes. Yep, evil eye Knievel. So we said, have it at Tucker Studio on Thursday. What size sweatshirt does it wear? <laughs> and so that's how simple it was. But it actually um, got to be a very large component of our advertising campaign. And it sold a lot of beer for Bud Light. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I, we were talking earlier and I obviously I don't remember Spuds McKenzie, but uh I do know that it was a big deal, and so it's pretty neat to hear that story. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely. So then you leave you leave Anheuser Busch, as you said earlier, and you go and start a marketing uh, brand uh, event firm here in, in the area, and grew it to one of the largest in the country, and then you sell it. So what was that like running that, and then why sell? So it was. You know, I left Anheuser-Busch where I was making a decent salary. I was in the stock option pool. Everybody thought I had lost my mind, <laughs> including <laughs> my parents. Why would you leave there? And I said, oh, because there's this great opportunity. And I realized if you work really hard, you know, sometimes it's like public school. You don't get ahead. And if you're working for yourself, you can. Um, I was a little naive at how quickly we could develop clients and revenue um, and, and bring on people and hire them. My partner and I actually had to write a few personal checks to make payroll in the beginning. So it was a it was a white knuckled experience every now and then. You know, we'd have a good year and then the next year we were upside down again. Um, but we we were very creatively focused. Um, we hired the most amazing young people. I mean, to date, I probably still have a thousand of them in my life and they're just incredible. And everyone wanted to work there. We worked very hard, but we played equally as hard. Um, we went after the type of clients that we liked and those we didn't like, we would resign. 
So it was a very, it taught me that culture in an organization is the strongest thing you can build. And when we went to sell the company, that culture added multiples to the, sure. to the amount they were willing to pay. Yeah. So why, what made you decide to sell? So that had always been our goal. Um, you know, once you get to that size, it, losing a big client is devastating, right? Sure. Our biggest client ended up being Miller Brewing Company. And if you lose a client like that, you can you may have to lay off half your staff and you just never know when management changes hands. And that happened to us at sure. Miller. Um, they, they it was owned by the Philip Morris company at the time. Philip Morris came in and fired the CEO, VP of sales and VP of marketing, which we had spent years, you know, sort of proving ourselves. All of a sudden, overnight, we have new bosses coming out of Philip Morris and they could have easily brought their own resources. Yeah. Um, but they let us demonstrate what we could do and ended up keeping us. So that kind of risk, you know, the bigger you are, you have to keep building and getting bigger. And we really didn't want to be even as big as we were. It was getting more and more challenging and opening. We had a New York office, a San Francisco office, Chicago, Milwaukee, you know, that all gets expensive. And so the goal always was to sell. Um, took us a little longer to get, you know, the partner that we wanted, but it worked out really well. Yeah, well, that's good. So then you get into cannabis and, you know, as you mentioned, Missouri obviously passed uh, the medical cannabis piece and two thirds of Missouri voted for that. Um, but I'm, you know, there's got to be still a lot of legislative challenges that you're facing. So talk to us about those less legislative challenges and, and how you're navigating them. So every state is different. And in the state of Illinois, for example, that that bill was brought forward legislatively in the state of Missouri. It was brought forward via a constitutional amendment. And so Missouri does have that ability. If you get enough signatures in your voting districts, you can put a bill up for vote. And that's what we did. So the interesting thing is the people involved in it were very um, experienced in cannabis around the country for many years. So they wrote very detailed language in terms of how many licenses for each type, um, what what the requirements were, who was going to manage it, the Department of Health. All of that was laid out in the constitutional language. So if people voted it in, it was pretty much dictated how the Department of Health was going to handle it, which is critical because otherwise it takes the legislature, you know, another year and a half to get rules written, allow people to apply, you know, and so on. That's what happened in Illinois. So it really delays the project. Um, we, Missouri actually had an extremely good bill. We were the 33rd state that approved medical. So we were able to take best practices in all the other states and leave behind the things that you know were uh, punitive to the business owners are you know worrisome for the community everything was pretty well worked out yeah so talk to me about cannabis just in general obviously uh, there's still a lot of i don't know bad connotation around it for certain people 
Um, but talk to me about the good that it can do and what really made you decide that you wanted to be a part of this industry? So I have this friend in Colorado is originally from St. Louis, and she's been a caregiver there for 20 years. And what that means is you can get a license. We have those in Missouri. You can get a license to grow a few plants for each patient that you're working with. And I watched her treat people from lupus to epilepsy to cancer, and it just was amazing to me. I was not a cannabis kid. I didn't use it. I, you know, believed in the just say no to drugs. I drank all of that, you know, Kool-Aid that everybody did. And so, you know, I just thought it was bad for you until I saw how it can be good for you. And now when I think about, you know, most of our medication is rooted in natural plants. And, you know, I now realize the plant was put here for a reason and we made it illegal for political and financial reasons. And so that starts to get you, you know, really aggravated when you see that a simple plant can help somebody so dramatically and it has been demonized for 85 years by our government like it has, you get really indignant about the whole thing. Then when I started treating these kids with epilepsy with a very simple oil that comes from the flower of this plant and nothing else, it, it was almost miraculous. You know, we'd see people go from 50 seizures a day to one or none. And it was life changing. You know, the whole family was able to sort of get their life back um, when these children would stop seizing like this. So I really, I got the bug just, you know, working in it for a little bit and listening and watching my friend and then, you know, getting involved. And I've been involved in Illinois and Missouri since the beginning of it. So I feel like, you know, the old, the old guard here now being in cannabis seven years is like dog years. <laughs> and now for a quick break, we bring in our sponsor, Enterprise Bank and Trust member FDIC. Enterprise Bank & Trust knows that every business and every person is unique. That's why they get to know you in a way that the large financial institutions don't. They are our banking partner here at the STL Leaders Podcast, and I highly recommend that you check them out. To learn more, visit EnterpriseBank.com. And now, back to this week's episode of the STL Leaders Podcast. Well, so you, you made a comment there I'd like to ask you about. You mentioned the government... Um, you know, demonizing it for 85 years. Talk to me about that because, you know, previously you and I have chatted about that, but what's the, what's the history and theory behind that? Why did they do that? So it's interesting. Um, if you do look up the history of it, there was a man named uh, Henry Onslinger, and he was running a department that was sort of the forerunner of the DEA, and his job was to supervise you know, alcohol when we had prohibition. So he had a large staff and a large budget like they do in government and alcohol was coming out of prohibition in 1933. So he needed something else to demonize. And what we're trying to truly understand is whether he got the ball rolling or some of the industrialists got the ball rolling. The, the DuPont family, um, the people that were involved in uh, printing and paper and things like that, because the cannabis plant 
is also the hemp plant. And you probably have been seeing and reading about hemp making a comeback. Hemp is just basically a cannabis plant that has very low THC. It's less than 0.3% and it doesn't have any psychoactive effect. And in fact, hemp is grown mostly for fiber, for building materials and things that can replace plastics. It's a renewable um, crop that can be used for thousands of things. And so between Henry Onslinger wanting to demonize something and maintain his department, he's the one that named it marijuana. That is a made up word to make it sound like it was coming from Mexico because he tried to get people to believe Mexicans were bringing this across the border. They were giving it to, to white women who were then shooting their husbands when they came home because they were high. They did a movie called um, Reefer Madness, which is just hysterical now, but the government funded that and it was just crazy propaganda to get people nuts about cannabis. So from the beginning, you know, there has been a lot of stereotyping of minorities, ethnic people, you know, jazz musicians were the bad guys. You know, those were the people that were bringing it here and selling it and using it. And as a result, you know, this war on drugs has just been decimating the country in terms of imprisoning minority people for cannabis when white people consume it just as much, if not more. So there's a big pushback on that now. You're finding that states that are approving this legally are definitely doing um, social equity programs to try to expunge records for minorities and also to bring them into the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So, I've seen that. I've seen that area of lately as well. So, so obviously you've done your research. You know a lot about this. Uh, you're obviously in the field. Do you think, from a from a marijuana perspective uh, or cannabis perspective, whatever word you'd like to use, that you can consume too much of it? Um, do you think Do you think Missouri or state should legalize it for recreational use as well, uh, and should it can still be you know controlled by, you know how much you can purchase and how much you can you know take in? So when I first got involved, I was definitely not for recreational. I was only for medical, and there is a, there is a limit on how much someone can purchase in a month. You know, after studying this for seven years and spending a lot of time in Colorado, I now think that bringing it online recreationally is a smart thing to do. First of all, there is not more cannabis consumed on planet Earth because we are legalizing it. It's only being regulated and taxed and tested versus black market stuff. So what's happening is people are still, you know, you know people that have done it and they buy it from God knows who in the park, you know, and a lot of times that stuff is grown with pesticides and it can be harmful. You never know from time to time you know, what it, what might be in it or how strong it is or isn't. And yes, you can overdo it. You, you can take something that is much too strong and, you know, it's going to put you out for a day. But the good news is it's not going to kill you. You know, people that are addicted to opioids, 
um, can't say that. You know, it's right. very risky, some of the prescription things that they're taking. And so cannabis, when cannabis is introduced in a state medically, after a year, deaths from opiate overdose are reduced by 25%. And that wow. is a stat that happens in every state. And so, you know, you can't deny that. Um, right. I saw a lot of people in my Illinois dispensary detoxing off opioids using cannabis, which is a much safer, no one's ever died of an overdose of cannabis. You know, the, the mechanism of action is just not there. You might sleep for a day or two, but you know, you're out of commission and people learn to take the dose, you know, that works for them. Right. So, I, you know, my mother is 90. I give her a gummy that has got a small amount of THC and CBD in it so she can sleep at night. You know, that's better than the prescription aids that the doctors will prescribe you. It's not addictive um, and it works. Yeah, no, I think those are all powerful statements, especially that stat of 25% reduction in opioid overdose. Um, I mean, think about it just a few years ago, the opioid crisis was, I mean, and it still is obviously, you know, very bad in this country. And to your point, having a plant-based medicine versus a prescription drug, just because maybe the, you know, the uh, pharmacist and the, all them can't make as much money on it, um, right. or it's not being taxed properly, but it can, it can be a, um, you know, better product for a variety of different solutions. And so, look, so I, I see, I, I see the uh, sports jerseys hanging on your wall there. This is a big topic with the NFL, the hockey league, you know, major league baseball. I was at a conference at Harvard two years ago and there were four NFL players there. Um, three were retired and one was active and they're physicians on this panel. And these guys tell the story about how, you know, the, they were taking it for pain and recovery. So cannabis is good for oxidation and inflammation. And this one guy said, you know, these are big strapping NFL players. He said, you know, we don't just play at football on Sunday. We play every day of the week. And at the end of that training, the docs come in and sh give them a shot of tramadol for inflammation and then hand them a bag of opioids for pain. And so some of these guys didn't like how it made them feel, what kind of husband or dad they became, and they would literally throw it away and take cannabis. And then they were always dodging that drug test you know, like hoping they didn't get caught. And one of the guys got caught four times and fined and finally said, forget about it. But I just read this weekend that the NFL is now looking and testing it to see if they can't permit their players. I mean, because if you think about it, there are now 16 states where it is legal. It's like going in and buying a cocktail. You know, so how do you tell somebody they can't do it if they live in one of those 16 states? And, you know, you're going to see 25 states um, before it's, you know, too soon. Yeah. Yeah. No, great. I mean, all valid points. And to your, to, you know, to that point, it's just if it's if it's been proven that it's uh, safer than an opioid and um, and you got these players in whatever sport it is uh, to not be all having to take those drugs and right. heaven forbid, then they get out of the NFL or the major league baseball or whatever it is. 
um, yeah, that's a, that's a huge win. And I agree with you. I don't know how, if you live in Colorado or one of those 16 states where it's a legal, legal drug for recreational use, how can you say, well, you can't, you know, you can't, uh, you, you're being fined because you took something that's legal in your state, but alcohol, you can go, right. I mean, you can do just as much damage on alcohol. You can go get toasted at a bar and then get in your car sure. and drive home and kill somebody. Oh, it's worse. It's worse. And if you look at the statistics on mm-hmm. car crashes, you know, there's no comparison. Um, you know, most people are doing this, you know, you know, right now, cannabis is not consumed publicly. It's not legal to go out in a bar like it is in the right. Netherlands or a coffee shop and consume it. So what happens is they're consuming it at home and they're right. relaxing and falling asleep and not getting in fights, you know, with family members, whereas alcohol is consumed out. And and the numbers of accidents and deaths from that, you know, continue to rise. So yeah. it's just it's hard to, you know, the negatives that we had thrown at us for all those years just don't hold up. <laughs> you know, once yeah. people try it and say, wow, this just makes me feel relaxed and really good. What could be wrong with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let me shift gears just a little bit here before we wrap up. You know, you've had a great career, obviously, all the way from your days at Anheuser-Busch to your marketing company to now, <clears throat> you know, the cannabis industry. You know, talking about leadership and how you view leadership and what has made you such a successful leader over your career. Well, in the beginning, you know, I wasn't a leader. I was following and I was watching people that I respected that had a lot more experience than I did. So you don't trust your gut, right? You, you're thinking, oh, I really shouldn't speak in this meeting. But over time, you know, you tend to notice that, well, I wouldn't have made that decision. So Spuds McKenzie is a good is a good example here. When I first presented it, it was shot down by my senior management that Anheuser-Busch would never use a dog, right? Um, About eight months later, I decided, you know what? That was a good idea. I'm just going to do it. It's not that visible. It's not that big. And so that was probably the first time that I had the courage just to say, screw you guys. I'm going to do this. And I did. And, you know, looking back, some of that same management took credit for it four and five years later, you know, as the bosses, they're entitled to do that. But what that taught me was, you know, if you see a good idea, fight for it. You know, it may not be a big idea at the time. You might have to dust it off, give it a little oxygen, try it a few different ways. But that's where a big idea is going to come from, from a small idea. And you have to have the courage um, to push it forward. So then when I left and started my own firm, um, you know, having the courage to call on clients that were bigger than what we, you know, had had currently worked on. um, What I learned was I was on the East Coast and the West Coast and people in the Midwest, you know, we had a we had a better cost of living structure. You know, it was cheaper for us to hire people than New Yorkers. So when I'd show up there, we had better ideas at about 50% of the cost. And so then I'm like, okay, this is like shooting fish in a barrel, as my grandpa would say, let's, let's go here. So we'd build the business. The thing that I probably learned the most was in running my own advertising agency. And that is to set a good example you know, hire, hire the right people and they will follow. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other thing is to stand in their corner when, 
something happens that a client you know is upset or blames them for something the first thing i would do is go stand in their corner and say this is my fault whether yeah. it was or it wasn't you know that that spoke volumes to my employees but it also said to my client you know hey you're going to deal with me you're not beating them up so over time you know after 40 years of working um you know you tend to learn some things but my my biggest learning is to create a culture where you can grow people who are capable and responsible and want to grow with you and then it's you know it's got a life of its own doesn't need me after a while absolutely no absolutely all very valid and great points let me ask you this last question before I let you go. If you could uh, give us one piece of advice for anybody who's listening to this episode, uh, whether it's about life, whether it's about business in general, what piece of advice would you give us? Wow. I would say, and I have to make a presentation next week for the St. Louis Business Journal. And it's interesting because when my kids were small, um, they had a bathroom that they shared. And I, hung some things in there and one of them said take a chance then take another chance and it's like you know as a parent you can tell your kids that they're not going to listen to you but maybe it'll rub off on them you know as they're walking past that and as i thought about this keynote speech for the business journal it's like wow i think that really rubbed off on me you know because at a at a late later in life when I could have stayed retired and I was really enjoying it, I was asked to kind of poke my nose in this new world of cannabis. And I'm a lifelong learner, so I really did want to learn about it. Um, But then I just kind of went after it 110%. And honestly, it will be my biggest project to date. Um, you know, it'll be more successful. I have met amazing people around the, the world that are involved in this. And it is the new, new thing. You know, it's like yeah. being involved in the beginning of the Internet. And when do you have the opportunity to do that? So, yeah. I, you know, at some point I've got to get retired again. But right <laughs> now it's so fascinating and fast moving. It's hard to quit. Yeah. No, I love the piece of advice. Take a chance. I, you know, I took a chance with this podcast in June of last year and it has been an overwhelming amount of success from just listens to support and sponsorships. And so I think it's a, I think that's a great piece of advice. So on behalf of the STL Leaders podcast uh, and myself, I appreciate you coming on here today and talking to us about your illustrious career and well, it's just giving us some information on cannabis uh, and the positives that it can have in our world. So thank you for that. Thanks, Brian. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the STL Leaders Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode of the STL Leaders Podcast.